Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Connery, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. Today, we are speaking with Carrie Jagir, the Compliance Director for the Vermont Cannabis Control Board, or CCB. This interview will be the first in a series that covers how the CCB ensures compliance with the laws, rules, and regulations governing both the adult use marketplace and the medical cannabis program here in Vermont. In this episode, we talk with Carrie specifically about the lab testing requirements that have been put in place to ensure product safety. We will also discuss how the compliance team audits the flow of products in the supply chain to confirm that licensed producers, retailers, and analytical labs are meeting these requirements. The show will be a little more technical than the others, but chock full of good info. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, and welcome back. We have the privilege today of speaking with Carrie Jagir, the Compliance Director for the Vermont Cannabis Control Board. Carrie comes to the CCB with close to three decades' worth of experience at Vermont's Agency of Agriculture. Most recently, he was both the Director of Public Health and the Agricultural Resource Management Division Director. In these positions, he played an active role in the oversight of the hemp program, which is making its way under the umbrella of the CCB in 2023. He is a familiar face at the Vermont State House, where for years he represented the interests of the Agency of Agriculture, and he has participated in numerous national associations, voicing Vermont's positions on policy decisions regarding feed, fertilizer, pesticides, and hemp at the national level. He lives in Northfield, Vermont with his wife, where they raise three daughters, and in their spare time, they operate a small maple sugaring business. Carrie, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. I know you have your hands full right now with close to 300 licenses to audit. So thanks for making the time to speak with us today. Of course. Thank you. All right. So I'd like to get started by asking you how you feel your experience at the Agency of Agriculture has prepared you for this new role at the CCB. Well, managing a bunch of different regulatory programs, it's they're very similar structure. Licensing entities, registering products, and playing part in the consumer protection piece. The basic outline for the for cannabis regulation in the state is really based on the feed, seed, and fertilizer and pesticide programs over at Ag. Um, there's a foundational piece that is laboratory testing, and the regulatory framework is built on top of that. Got it. So I think that when I think about framing this conversation about we, what we want to talk about today, I mean, there's a lot that you have to pay attention to under the umbrella of compliance. Um, and so we're going to try to break it down into different sections because we couldn't possibly speak about it all today. Mm-hmm. And we thought we would focus on that consumer protection piece because I feel like you know, that was one of the major motivators for creating a regulated marketplace. You know, you hear the CCB always talk about their primary mandate as being, you know, bringing the the legacy market or the illicit market into the regulated market. Um, but also the other big piece was was lab testing, basically, because we knew people were out there buying products already, but people generally didn't know what they were consuming. 
And so how did the CCB set up the, the testing protocol? What are the major kind of buckets that they're looking to test to make sure that products are safe when they, they make it uh, into the stores here? Well, luckily, we had a lot of missteps from other states who had gone before us. And we basically learned from what happened in, in other states. And the three sort of basic components of our our testing program is uh, residual pesticides, human pathogens, and potency requirements. There are some areas where we're, we want to look for heavy metals or residual solvents for anything that's been extracted. But the three primary for flour are just that, the pesticide testing, the human pathogen testing, and potency. And that's the foundation of basically our consumer protection program. Under the hemp program, it was called the Cannabis Quality Control Program. And we adopted a lot of the tenants from the hemp program in the CCB rules. So let's speak a little bit about, like, take each one at a time. And so when we're talking about potency, uh, Vermont has set um, some limitations on that. And so you're not just trying to identify what's in the product um, so that the consumer can say, oh, there's like 2.5 milligrams of THC or whatever uh, it's formulated to be. But you're also doing this lab testing to ensure that it's below these thresholds that we have. And so in Vermont, we set thresholds on amount per serving in an infused product, which would be five milligrams total per serving and 50 milligrams per total package. And then 60% on solid concentrates and 30% THC on flour. And so how are you, how do you, how does the information, because the the manufacturers or the growers are the ones who are bringing those samples to the labs to get tested. Mm-hmm. How do you find out what's kind of going on to understand if people are meeting these and what some of the challenges are there? Um, and what are you seeing so far? Are we finding that a lot of flour that's coming in over 30% and it can't come into the market as flour, but it's got to go to the extract? Like what, what have we been discovering? Yeah. So largely where we see the certificates of analysis is when somebody's registering their product. So part of product registration, we get to review the packaging. Um, We have very strict packaging guidelines in Vermont. Building a market without any plastic packaging has been trying for both licensees as well as some of the packaging manufacturers to come up with products specifically for Vermont. The other piece is the label. We get to make sure all the criteria the legislature and the board set forth in statute and rules is on the label. And we are checking potency. And also with that package for product registration is a certificate of analysis. And our sort of testing flow chart guidance is up on the website. And so depending on what the product is, we may see multiple certificates of analysis when that product gets registered. I know people are going to point out that those products are only registered once a year. So we see the initial COA. And then any time a product is transferred, we're in the process of going live. We're in the testing mode right now for our inventory tracking system. The COAs will be uploaded any time a product is transferred. So we'll be able to keep track of that through the process. So you're saying that you see it when the product gets registered. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you saying that now that the general public, once you have your tracking system kind of more dialed in and live, that the general public is going to be able to log into the CCB website and see the COAs whenever a product makes its way to market? We will see them 
Um, but in the initial phase of the rollout of this system, we don't have a public facing portal for consumers to see those COAs. But what's been happening is our retailers have been using UPC codes that direct people to online postings of those certificates of analysis. It's yet to be seen if we, if the state will need to weigh in and share those COAs or not. The retailers are making those available through other means right now. And if we need to be part of that process, we will, but it seems to be happening without us. But we do get them and review them. Gotcha. And so I guess one question that brings up for me is that there is a a tolerance range, right, that's allowed um, from the the label target? Yes, for potency, yes. For mm-hmm. potency, right. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if it was supposed to be a five milligram gummy, say, mm-hmm. um, what can it legally be? Is it can they go over that if it's up to five since that's a threshold or, or no? How does that I And I don't have that up in front of me right now, Bridget. We're committed to memory. But yeah, there are, <laughs> there are um, analytical variations built in to our thresholds and they are scalable. So the lower milligram amounts will have a higher percentage analytical variation, while the higher amounts um, have a lower tolerance, if you will. So 20% at five milligrams is a lot different than 20% at 60%. So the analytical variation is scalable over the range of what we might see in a product. Gotcha. If the consumer wants to see a potency uh, COA mm-hmm. for a certain batch, then they'll be able to get that through the retailer and they'll be actually to see what it is. Like it may say five milligrams on the package, but the lab result or the the COA is going to say that this batch is actually Mm 4.8 per serving. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And we're slightly concerned about, you know, new processors to the market being able to maintain consistency over the entire process of a single batch. Batch testing, normally you'll see a beginning, middle, end test. We haven't done that work to see how well some of our lower tier processes are going to be able to manage that sort of consistency, product consistency. So the market is in its infancy and knowing how well we homogenize and craft products is yet to be seen. Right. And so I guess for me, that brings up the question of a manufacturer will submit a sample to the lab to verify that they've met the the label target. And that sample might actually meet it. (laughs) Um, But we don't know whether every serving in that batch actually meets it. And so what are the ways that you're going to try to suss that out? Do you have uh, people out in the field that are collecting random samples off of dispensary shelves to to test them to see if that's the case or... How do you go about doing that? Yeah, no, that is our plan. That program is in its infancy. And so far, all of the samples that we've taken and sent to the lab have been from cultivators. We started issuing cultivator license way before the retail market opened. And and those products, as they're making their way to the consumer, we have pulled product and tested for pesticides as well as um, the pathogens throughout the process. We will be moving into some of the retail sampling shortly. Just it's sort of a trust but verify system. All of our 
licensees really want to accomplish the same thing, and that set a high bar for standards in Vermont, and we're plodding along that path together. I do expect there to be some variation in production as our processors grow and learn their processes. A lot of our producers are coming out of a legacy market where that really didn't matter. I mean, you got what you got, and now we're trying to encourage those folks to make consistent products and sample their batches appropriately. The guidance for sampling flour is out, but we do need to work with our laboratories and our producers to come up with standard sampling procedures for for animals. And, um, right. you know, we are behind at that uh, with that guidance, but our real impetus was to meet the legislature's directive of opening a market on October 1st. Right. And so what happens if somebody does, you know, miss the mark? Do they have to destroy it? How do they, they have to destroy that batch? Or in terms of, I guess we could talk about yeah. that in terms of infused products, because that's different than mm-hmm. flour. Flour might be able to go a different processing route and get turned into an extract. Yeah. So it will be a case-by-case basis and evaluated individually. We have pulled some products from the shelf for various reasons. At this point, potency has not been a reason for us to pull a product from the shelf, but we have pulled other products from the shelf for packaging or being mislabeled. The same thing would happen with a product that misses its guarantee. There's numerous routes that could be taken when a product doesn't meet its spec, um, reformulated, it depends, relabeled. Um, if it's over five, it wouldn't be repackaged or offered for sale or or any of those things. Same with the, if we find a product with pesticide residues or residual solvents or or human pathogens, those don't go back on the shelf. Um, right. And so what happens with flour? Because that seems like it's the, the mm-hmm. easiest one. I don't know if you know if we've run into any situations. I know we've got some great growers here in Vermont. They've been growing a long time. A lot of them were really upset about the 30% THC limits. Are they having a hard time staying underneath it? And if they are, does it go to extraction? Is that their their solution there? So we've only had two flower samples that were above 30%, and they weren't very much above Hmm. 30%. Uh, Most of them are are below 30%. 30 is hard to reach, though, I think. 30 I mean, is hard to reach. Indoor. I mean, by dry weight, I think it's a little bit easier, you know, if mm-hmm. you're reporting in that way. And and are we doing that as a requirement in, in Vermont to report by dry weight or like as is, as you find yeah. it in that moisture range when you buy it? It's reported as is. It's, you know, it's 13, okay. yeah, 13% moisture is shelf-stable. We get a moisture result as well as a potency result. And they're not dry weight. So it's as is. So some of the other states have allowed, you know, zero moisture and folks to bump up that potency number, right. artificially inflate it. But it does allow you to compare apples to apples, though, you know, if you if, if it's zero percent across the board. I think the as is generally is better for the consumer because it's telling them, you know, kind of realistically where it is when they buy it off the shelf. So, yeah. I think using a dry weight may also sort of encourage the higher potency products to be, you know, what people are looking for. And I'm 
hopeful that that's not the sort of market that develops here in Vermont. Right. Let's move on from the potency part, because there's mm-hmm. two other big areas that I'd like to get to. And so the first one, I think, might be human pathogens. People might not think that the products are tested for that. I mean, we just recently saw that uh, story in the New York Times about how the the Medical Cannabis Association in New York did some random testing of illicit product um, that was being sold in various illegal outlets uh, in New York City, and like 40% of those products were found to have human pathogens like E. coli and Mm -hmm. salmonella in them. And so it is a really important test to be done. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so what are we testing for in the state of Vermont? So there's a difference, a discrepancy between the hemp program and the adult use program here. And the hemp program is looking for mold, mildew, fungus, and mycotoxins. The adult use program is looking for human pathogens and aspergillus. So the human pathogens are E. coli, salmonella, listeria, um, anything you would get from improper handling. That comes from people handling your product without gloves or being unsanitary. And the aspergillus is a naturally occurring fungal pathogen that does have severe human health impacts for some people, not for everybody. And it's similar in my mind after doing a little reading to sort of like the peanut allergen. Certain people are going to be very affected by aspergillus and others won't even know it's there. So we threw that in there as an important analyte to test for. And is that something that you're generally testing for just on the flower or does that show up in extracts as well? So... Of course, that's almost a trick question, Bridget, <laughs> but it is primarily on flower. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's primarily on flower, but um, depending on your extraction method, if your extraction method has a kill step, it will not show up. So your CO2 or your ethanol extractions that are then further processed with heat or refinement, aspergillus is not an issue. Aspergillus is also not an issue if it's going into an edible. It's strictly sort of an inhalation issue. Gotcha. If your flower is being mechanically extracted, bubble hash or uh, dry ice keef or even, you know, pollen collection, the dry sift off trimming, there's no kill step there. And if those are bound for a smokable product, inhalable product, then we should be looking for aspergillus. So as far as extraction goes, there are there are certain extractions that have a kill step um, for aspergillus and others that don't. And we've sort of captured that in our testing flow chart. Good. And so are you saying that we're only testing for aspergillus when it comes to those um, like mold and mildew and mycotoxins and things like that? that we're not testing for powdery mildew and we're not testing for botrytis or things like that. So yeah, that's all that's required. But currently we've got really two cannabis-centric commercial laboratories. One of them offers that mycotoxin screen with the pesticide analysis because it's done on the same instrument. So while it's not required, we are seeing a lot of COAs with that mycotoxin screen Got it. But we don't have any thresholds defined for that or requirements. So they could be on there, but we don't do anything about it necessarily. Just the aspergillus piece. We've talked about this in the past, not on the podcast, but just about how this is an agricultural product. (laughs) Um, And whether it's going indoors or outdoors, 
it is most likely going to have some molds or mildews, you know, and some of them at really low levels, some of them at higher levels that you need to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. And I think we've always said that, you know, if you have concerns about that, if you're immunocompromised, especially like flour is probably the the product that if you have these concerns that that would be the product you might want to avoid because it's getting those things into your lungs that's going to cause a lot of problems. Whereas if you're dealing with infused product that's made with an extract or something that's going to be going through your digestive system, those total yeast and molds and things like that aren't as much of a risk. Would you say that's about right? I mean, not totally technical, but... Yeah, (laughs) it is. No, you nailed it. You nailed it. For those that are compromised and are risk averse, then flour is not for you. That said, we've had an illicit market that's distributed flour all over the state for decades. And no one's, no one that we know of has reported aspergillosis, but it's rare. We still want to be protective. Definitely. Good. All right. So then the next category would be the, um, the pesticides and the residual Mm -hmm. solvents. And so, Maybe let's mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about those. I mean, pesticides, um, you know, there's a certain amount of pesticides that are allowed and they're mm-hmm. allowed at certain times. And so yeah. what are the things that we're trying to protect against and where would the you know the compliance issues come in when you're talking about flour? Yeah, so in our battery of tests so far as in this very early stages of our market, Aspergillus has kept some flour from market, and so has residual pesticides. We do have a list of pesticides that are acceptable for use on all cannabis, whether it's hemp or high THC cannabis, and it's the same list. And the majority of the products on there don't leave a residual. So your your peroxide products, for instance or even some of the antagonistic bacterial or fungal products don't leave a pesticide residue. Um, We're screening for what we allow, but we're also screening for what we don't allow. And the legacy market has encouraged growers to use things that are harmful when inhaled. Um, We heard of mycobutanol or Eagle 20. Everybody knows what that is. Well, everybody who's like into cannabis. (laughs) But the new consumers, maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Bridget, in my last role, you know, I was the manage the pesticide program. So everybody that I would have talked to (laughs) knows what Eagle 20 is, but you're right. It's a very limited everybody. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so, I mean, it's a highly toxic chemical, right? You don't want it It on your flower if you're going to smoke it. No, no. And mycobutanil is the active ingredient in it. Basically, when it combusts, it creates sodium cyanide. So that's one we would like to avoid. Definitely. I mean, out of curiosity, has it popped up anywhere so far in Vermont? It has. Yep. Yep. Um, And I expect to discover that it wasn't necessarily from somebody who used it, but uh, somebody inherited spray equipment from a legacy grow. Even if the spray equipment gets cleaned, there's there's a residual there. We're looking in parts per trillion for some of these active ingredients. Yeah. So if it's there at all, we'll find it. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why they're just so nasty too, some of these chemicals. It's it's not only that they're toxic to to people when consumed certain ways, they're toxic to the environment and they yeah. hang out for a while. Like they don't right. break down even in small amounts, they're there. Yeah. So 
Well, you know, even though it's not great to know that it has popped up, on the flip side, it actually is great to know because the system is working. Yep. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. I was going to say, in this case, the the grower was confused where it, as to where it came from, and that flower never made it to market. Right. Good. All right. So the last uh, category that is important to speak to today would be residual solvents. And so residual solvents are only going to be found in extracts, because we're speaking about some of the chemicals that can be used to uh, make the extracts that either go into vape or go into edible or transdermal products. And so let's start, I guess, by saying what solvents are allowed in the state of Vermont. You want to identify those? Sure. So the only ones that have a statutory prohibition are butane and hexane. That opens the door for a lot of other solvents. Currently, all of our manufacturers are either using ethanol or CO2. We have we are working with fire safety. There are there are a few manufacturers that do want to use propane. Hmm. Propane replaces butane for your you know dabs and shatter. Um, those right. those those processors have not been licensed yet, but their applications have come to the control board and are currently with fire safety. Fortunately, we've partnered with Fire Safety to review all of these new licensees and specifically because we were concerned about folks wanting to use other pressurized flammable solvents for extraction. And while they're not, those products aren't in the market yet, um, they will be and it will be very important for us to be keeping tabs on residual solvents for some of the after processing of those products. Right. So, for listeners that are new to cannabis, um, you know, the hexane, the, the butane, those are solvents that have been used for a long time in the illicit market. Uh, if they're left in the product, uh, they're not safe because they're neurotoxins and you don't want to be inhaling those. But they're also a safety concern in terms of manufacturing. I know a lot of states have actually required like blast-proof rooms and things like that if you're going to be using those solvents, which are allowed in other states because they do allow you to create different products. You know, every solvent kind of extracts different things from the, yep. from the plant yep. that we're looking for, depending on the kind of where it's going to land up in the supply chain and the finished good. And so they are allowed. Um, and so you've got safety on the, the manufacturing side, and then you've got the safety issues on the consumption side. And so right now they're not allowed in Vermont, but they might be. Uh, I did sit in on the CCB meeting last week uh, and was glad to hear about the draft uh, recommendations that the CCB is going to be sending to the legislature to try to remove the potency limits that are in place right now. And specifically, the one on the, the 60% on solid concentrates would open up the door for those more dabbable products to be on the market. And a lot of them do usually require a hydro, uh, hydrocarbon like propane or hexane mm. or, or butane. So if that passes, then you'll, we'll be looking to test for propane as well. Yeah. But they're not allowed right now. So the testing that we have in place right now is ensuring that there aren't people who are using those solvents illegally. Correct. Correct. And I, I think some of what we're seeing in, in COAs, I think, are, are the solvents that folks are using to clean their equipment. Um, after a dry sift run, if you use isopropyl or if you use acetone to clean off your equipment, those solvents are actually making it into the dry sift, but at, at very low levels. So we've got an action level of about 5,000 parts per million for acetone. We're seeing 
hundreds of parts per million in some of those solvents, which are, are, it's still protective of those levels were set to be protective of human health, but it's also going to educate and improve our market as we, uh, you know, evolve. Definitely. All right. So we talked about potency. We talked about pesticides. We talked about residual solvents. Um, what are we missing? Are we missing anything? Oh, we talked about the human pathogens. Um, I think those are the, the main ones, right? In terms mm-hmm. of just product safety. They are. Um, we do have action levels for heavy metals because cannabis is a well-known bioremediator. And um, some of the heavy metal tests may be unnecessary, but when you're concentrating, when you're concentrating cannabinoids you're also concentrating the other things in the plant i haven't seen any heavy metal results that have risen to no red flags there as far as heavy metal testing but for some of the solid and liquid concentrates especially for cannabis that's been grown outdoors it's it's really worth keeping that heavy metal test there until we're sure that uh, it isn't an issue some of your indoor grows depends on what you're using as a soil amendment don't really have that issue, but yes. uh, we'll keep it on the books for now. Yeah, for sure. And so if, just to kind of explain that a little bit more too, it's like the cannabis plant when it's growing in soil is going to absorb whatever's in the soil, you know? And so if it's being grown in a place where the soil is not clean and might have heavy metals in it, that's going to make its way into the finished product. Yeah. And I guess to your point, if you're growing indoors, the only way that might get in there is if you're, yeah, your soil medium or your, whatever you're using has those in there, which would mean that it was a pretty low quality product. You know, I mean, I think all of the legit products out there are going to make sure that those are in there. Um, But again, these tests are in place in order to catch that just in case. Yeah. But I was going to say, well, one of the things we learned from the hemp world, our our trial run with hemp was that uh, the hemp plant really loved taking light out of the soil. And it was showing up oh. in, in a lot of extracts. So a lot of extracts needed to be further processed because of the lead levels in some of the hemp extracts. Interesting. Mm. All right. So something to look out for in the cannabis space. The last thing that I wanted to kind of touch on before we go, and uh, we are going to have you back uh, in season two to talk about other compliance issues. But, you know, we've heard a lot from folks that the lab testing part of the supply chain is a little bit of a bottleneck. Um mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get from your perspective how we're doing on that front, how many labs are up and going right now that can actually uh-huh. perform these tests, and do yeah. you, um, how do you audit them to understand that they actually have systems in place that are accurately measuring these things we're looking for? Mm-hmm. So two labs were actually grandfathered in because they were registered hemp labs. And when the Cannabis Quality Control Program came over to the CCB, those two labs and their licenses came with it. And that's uh, BIA Diagnostics and Endine. And primarily, as we entered into the October 1st opening of our market, BIA Diagnostics was the only cannabis lab open. BIA is currently in the process of expanding their footprint. Um, they're expanding their cannabis lab. They do other work at BIA, but uh, they're expanding their cannabis lab. So it might even more than double their capacity. And the other lab that's come online in the last month or so is Steep Hill. Steep Hill is just a cannabis lab, and they're coming on on board now. And what the process that all three labs have gone through is 
the CCB previously AG, but the CCB now receives all other method validation work, all their method detection work. I get very large PDFs from these folks. Each individual, <laughs> each individual individual analysis goes through a method validation process where all the statistics are done. The samples are run repetitively, and it's a very large data package that we look at and ensure that they can do the tests that they say they can do. Their results are based on being accurate and precise. So you have people on your team besides yourself that are skilled in understanding all of those documents and things that you're reading and are able to actually audit a lab. I mean, because there's a lot of expertise that's so very, it's, it's a lot going on there. So you have a team that can do that for you. It is important. And the team right now is very small, but yes, we have that capability in-house. Great. And that said, there'll be a third lab that's in the process of getting lessons, getting set up in lessons as well. And they're, they're in Williston. So we have two in Colchester, one in Williston. And do you think, how's it going right now? I mean, in terms of product getting to market, is there mm-hmm. like a two or three week delay that, that people are waiting on once they get a sample submitted? And is it really an issue right now? Or do you feel like this, you know, these two labs right now are kind of gotten up to speed? So there are numerous competing bottlenecks in getting a product to market. Um, one is the packaging hurdle, one's the registration hurdle, one is the lab. And which one of those bottlenecks has got a tighter squeeze really depends on the day. But I know you're aware of what it takes to get a product on the shelf. And some of our folks that are have participated in the legacy market prior are learning how to bring a product to market. So the bottlenecks are are the lab, but they're not only the lab. Right. Well, I've been really excited. I've been visiting um, quite a few retail stores just to check out what's out there in terms of product and what the mm-hmm. customer experience is. And I'm seeing quite a bit of flour, you know, mm-hmm. making it to market. I still, they're still, I think, lacking on the edible side. And so I don't know if that's, if lab testing is involved there, if it's the delay there, or if it's the the people trying to just get their formula locked in, but I'm excited for those products to be more visible and available in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the answers to that is our retail licenses were issued far in advance of our manufacturing license. So our manufacturers are still going through the licensing process now. So hopefully in the near future, you will start to see more and more other products available. Excellent. Last question before we mm-hmm. say goodbye for today, Carrie. I'm just curious to understand what your team looks like. How many people are on the compliance team and uh, what are their backgrounds real quick? You know, and you know, do you see this team growing in the near future and how? <laughs> yes, in the very near future, uh, we do see it growing. We have four field agents right now that cover the state, varied backgrounds, a few of them um a few of the names you'll you would recognize, Bridget. So we do have half the, or more than half the team uh, have cultivation experience. We're currently in the process of interviewing for two two more field agents, and I'd like to see some of the expertise varied. As we've started off uh, focusing on our cultivation licensees, we've got other licensees that need to be inspected and expertise to bring to the table. The food inspection piece would be very important. Somebody who knows what they 
need to be looking at going into a commercial kitchen as well as anyone with sort of retail inspection experience. The auditing of a retail facility is different than a cultivation, but we're all trainable, but we are looking for different expertise to sort of flesh out our flesh out our team. Got it. I'd really like to see the health department step in and help the CCB with that food inspection part and um, inspecting commercial kitchens. So far, <laughs> you know, in my experience on the on the medical side, we invited them yeah. in every year and they wouldn't yeah. come. No. And and they won't. They will not uh, license a business that also has a cannabis license. And yeah. I'm hopeful that, that changes. It's something that we're going to be <laughs> lobbying for. You know, for a few yeah. reasons. I mean, I think that the health department they have the expertise, and in the cannabis space, you know, there's <laughs> going to be a lot of edible products. It makes total sense for the health department to be expecting them and being a partner instead of having your team kind of get up to speed on those. Um, mm-hmm. And then. Um, I just think that there's going to be so many businesses that would like to diversify and sell things besides cannabis, you know, and whether it's coffee or different food items or a cafe setting, I think the health department would be a great partner there too. And so I'm hopefully that's going to change uh, in the near future. So we'll end there with yeah. kind of like my, my want. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> uh, Carrie, a uh, pleasure to speak with you today about compliance and product safety. I think a lot of good information for our listeners to walk away with there. How do people get in touch with you if they have any questions or maybe if they've got something to share, you know, for their mm-hmm. experience or they have concern about a product that's out there? Do you field those calls and how do they how do they go about doing that? Yeah, definitely. They're generally emails and there's a portal uh, for complaints on the CCB website. That's the easiest way. Um, I could give you my direct email address, but if you use either CCB compliance or any one of the web portal email addresses, we're getting complaints all the time and those get fielded and addressed. Can you tell me real quickly, what are people complaining about? Is it packaging primarily? Packaging and advertising are largely the complaints. And there are there's a learning curve for municipalities and learning what their authority is with cannabis licensees. Their authority varies and their the municipalities are generally reaching out to various reasons. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll dive into those things in, in season two. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Gary. Thanks so much. You're um, welcome. And uh, yes, we'll talk soon. Take care. All right. Bye. All right. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5et.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.